and welcome to Studying the Steps, where we take a deeper dive into the 12 steps. In each episode, an alcoholic woman in recovery helps us study individual steps as outlined in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Through her personal experience and knowledge of working the program, she gives insight on how to apply and practice the spiritual principles being studied. This podcast is from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a nonprofit organization located in Dallas, Texas, and we provide comprehensive recovery services to alcoholic women at absolutely no cost. You can learn more and support our mission at MagdalenHouse.org. Please note, the curriculum we teach through our programs at Maggie's is from the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. However, we are not an Alcoholics Anonymous group, and we are not associated with AA. We're so glad you're here. Thanks for listening. Chloe, if you don't mind, just introducing yourself for, to the group, and then I'm just going to let you take it away. So. Okay. I'm an alcoholic. My name is Chloe. My sobriety date is July 7th, 1992, and I am super grateful for that. Um, and Stephanie made me sound like a real expert on this, and I am less of an expert and more just I have a lot of character defects, and... Um, and I've had to work really hard on six and seven. And so I just have a lot of experience with this. So, but I appreciate those kind words, Stephanie. So I got sober young and, you know, I, I had tried going to other 12-step programs thinking that I had problems that weren't alcohol. I, just, I really just didn't want alcohol to be the thing that I had to give up just because it was, because it worked, you know, it was, it was something that, always changed the way that I feel in a way that um, made life tolerable. And I ended up getting sober through treatment and, um, you know, joined, joined AA and have been here ever since. I haven't, I, I don't have a long story of relapse and, you know, I am grateful for that. But um, I love talking about six and seven. They're, they're tricky steps. I, it took me, a, you know, the first several years, I think, before I really understood um, these two steps, because there is just two little paragraphs in the big book about them. Um, and so, you know, the, my first time through the steps with my sponsor, um, I've had a lot of different sponsors over the, the years. I got sober in my first couple of years, I was out in Tucson, Arizona. And so the sponsor I had there, we really just read those paragraphs, got on our knees, said the prayer, and then I was, you know, on to steps eight and nine. And I, one of the things I always want to start with in this meeting is I'm just talking about my own experience. And so if your sponsor is telling you to do something different, do what she says. Don't do what I say. This is just my experience. I'm not right. You know, um, so listen to her, please. But in my, so I, I have had several different experiences with six and seven. Again, you know, it, the, these are steps that I will do for the, you know, the duration of my sobriety. In, you know, I just, I haven't found that I've been struck perfect yet. You know, what, what we're dealing with is character defects here and, um, and, and these are part of the human experience. And so I, I will start here just reading through the step itself and then we'll read through those two paragraphs and then I'll kind of just go through you know, some of, some of my experience with these steps, and I do really want questions. Um, you know, again, there's, these are, there, there's not a lot of content in the book, so please be thinking of questions for me. So on 59, that's in how it works, that's where it lists the actual steps. So step six is we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character, and seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. And so just, you know, to really paraphrase, you know, we've just done four, four and five with our sponsors. We've just seen all of these defects of character. We're getting willing to give them to God in six and in seven, we are giving them to God. So then let's turn over to 76, where we've got our two little paragraphs on, on these steps. So at the top of the page, it says, if we can answer... Well, let's, let's turn to the page before because it does start in a, the middle of a thought. So on the bottom of 79, this is, this is coming out of our fifth step. And six and seven are so closely tied to four and five. And I will talk about that. But just to read through, 
So this is talking about right after our fifth step. So we've just sat down, we've just read our whole fourth step to our sponsor. It's telling me that now I'm returning home, we find a place where we can be quiet for an hour, carefully reviewing what we have done. We thank God from the bottom of our heart that we know him better. Taking this book down from our shelf, we turn to the page which contains the 12 steps, which is just where we just were. Carefully reading the first five proposals, which are the first five steps, we ask if we have omitted anything, for we are building an arch through which we shall walk a free man at last. And so it, Bill, throughout the book, talks about this spiritual structure that we're building. You know, he talks about the foundation stone, the cornerstones, the keystones. He is trying to like paint this picture of this spiritual archway that we're trying to walk through. And that's what we're getting right here. Coming off of our fifth step, we're you know, ready to walk through into this place of freedom. So we're asking, is our work solid so far? Are the stones properly in place? Have we skimped on the cement put into the foundation? Have we tried to make mortar without sand? And so in that hour, we're really, we're going back through that inventory that we just read. Did I leave anything out? Were there any secrets that I was holding back that I knew that I was supposed to tell her that I should? It's not, it's really not for like, oh, I forgot that in third grade, you know, Betty punched me in the face and I'm still kind of pissed about it. I mean, if that comes up, obviously, you know, write it down. But this is more about things that I have intended. These are things that are going to block me from God. So the next page on 76, if we can answer to our satisfaction, then we look at step six. We have emphasized willingness as being indispensable. Are we now ready to get, let God remove from us all the things which we have admitted are objectionable? Can he now take them all, every one? If we still cling to something, we will not let go. We ask God to help us be willing. And so that's a prayer there. We're asked, if, we're, if we're still holding on to one of these things, we ask God to help us be willing. And I'll go more into the sort of um, the formal part of this in a minute. So when ready, so when I'm willing, we say this prayer, something like this. My creator, I am now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. So we're giving everything. We don't know. The truth is we don't know what's good and bad. We don't know what are, what are our defects and what are our assets. We're giving it all to God. I pray that you now remove from me every single defective character, which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. So we're asking not so that I can have this great free life. It's so that I can be more helpful. Take away the things that are blocking me from being helpful. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. Amen. We have then completed step seven. And one fun thing, and I don't know, I don't think Bill, Bill ever said anything about it, but there's like this story in AA about how in the third step prayer, there's no amen at the end of it. And this is the first amen that we have in the book from since that third step prayer. And so there's this sort of, you know, story in AA that we're placed in a position of protection between step three and step seven while we're doing those action steps, while we're writing our inventory. And on step seven, we get that amen there. So like, I don't know that it's actually true, but it's, you know, it's a nice little story. So I just want to talk about, you know, I, I want to sort of do big picture for a minute here because I, I want to talk a little bit about why these steps are important. You know, I, I came into AA or I came, went into treatment thinking that, that drugs and alcohol were my problem, right? Like, you know, I thought that alcohol was my problem. If I could just either learn how to drink safely, if I could just learn how to not drink, if I could learn how to, you know, um, drink in moderation, if I could learn how to drink without consequences, then I'd be okay. And in AA and with sponsorship, with going through these steps, what I have learned is that alcohol is not my problem. Lack of power is my problem. What, I don't have an alcohol problem. I have a problem with, with powerlessness. I lack power. And that's not just around alcohol. We start with that, but it's around everything. And so my whole, in, the whole thing I'm trying to gain through these 12 steps is access to power. That's it. That's the whole thing. And one of the, one of the side effects of accessing that power is that I'm restored to sanity and um, I cannot drink anymore. So that's one of the beautiful things. But the other part of this powerlessness is that I've been a real jerk, you know, like I just have, you know, it's like I, you know, have been trying, I've been living by this delusion that I can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if I only manage well. So I come to the table thinking that, that you're, you're my problem, like that, that I'll be okay if I just get what I want. 
if I can just get that job, if I can just get that boyfriend, if I can just, you know, get a car that runs or, um, you know, a certain amount of money in the bank, you know, it's like, if I can just get things to look a certain way, then I'll be okay. And I'm convinced of this. And so all of my actions that I take are based on this lie, this delusion that I'll be okay if you'll just act different, if you'll just give me what I want and you'll be happy too. Trust me. Like I, I've got it all worked out. I'll be, ha it's better for me. It's better for you. It's better for the government. It's better for the neighbor. Like it's, everybody's going to be okay if you'll just follow, you know, my lead on this. And I believe it. And so when you don't do what I think that you're supposed to do, I react as if my life depends on it. You know, I'm delusional. I don't know. I don't know that's what I'm doing. And I don't know that I'm wrong. And so these defects that I have, um, like I'm a liar at my worst, when I feel like you're standing in the way of me being happy, you know, I will lie, I'll steal, I'll cheat, I will um, manipulate, you know, sometimes, you know, and, and I love pages 60 to 63, where it goes through all of that, right? In that third step, we talk about how I am wheeling and dealing, you know, I'm trying the I'm just an actor, but I think I'm a director. I'm trying to arrange everything, the lights, the scenery. Um, if you would just stay put, everybody, you know, everybody will be happy, including me. And so um, I, that's how I show up in life. And, and again, I don't know, I don't know that I'm doing it. And so I've spent my whole life operating with these defects of character that I just think are survival skills. You know, I just, I just think that, that that's, that's what I have to do to get my needs met because nobody else is going to do it for me. And, you know, getting sober, I started to realize I've been wrong my whole life. Everything I've come to the table with has been wrong. You know, we have these surrenders that we have to go through or that I've had to go through um, in those 12 steps. And the first one in step one is um, it's on 25 where it talks about um, we came to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as I had been living it. And that, that's that first step surrender. Have I come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of my life as I have been living it? It's, that's, I had to believe it. I wasn't going to surrender in step one until I, like, that's that powerlessness. Do, do I believe in the hopelessness and futility of my life? If I don't, I'm not going to keep on with these steps. And the reason I'm telling you this is because these surrenders are what are going to push you through the rest of the steps. You know, if you don't believe that your life depends on it, you're not going to do it because these are hard. And so it always comes back to that desperation of a drowning man. Do I believe I have to do this? You know, um, if lack of power is my dilemma, how do I access power? This is about aligning my will with God's will, accessing that power so that I can have um, this connection and and keeping that connection. It's about living in the sunlight of the spirit. And you know, I, I, you'll hear an AA, I heard it, I've said it, I've been part of the problem. Like, you know, it, it's said all the time that, you know, we have this God-sized hole. You know, we've used everything to fill it up. And I know what it, I understand it, it resonated for me. I could identify that. You know, I would use, you know, guys, I would use money, I would use drugs and alcohol, I would use, you know, um, adrenaline, I would use all of the food, shopping, whatever, you know, to fill up that, that feeling of emptiness. And then I heard somebody say, I have just as much God in me right now as I have ever had. God has always been there. There has never been a hole. What it has been is that I've been so full of self that I couldn't access God. And in that moment, I got it. God's always been there. There's just been so much Chloe that I couldn't connect with that power. I could not access power. And so steps four through nine are all about getting rid of so much Chloe that there is the, the, that I have the ability to tap into that power, which is the answer to all of my problems. And so, you know, six and seven are a big part of the getting rid of the parts of me that are continuously blocking me over and over again, even today at, you know, 20 something years sober, there is still, I am still run by the delusion that I can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world. If I only manage well, if you would just do what I want, I'll be happy. And so it's coming back to that place over and over again, identifying those defects of character and offering them to God.
So that first step, surrender, right? We've got that first step, surrender, came to believe in the hopelessness and futility of my life. We've got the second step proposition. God's either everything or he's nothing. What's our choice? What's our choice? So if I'm choosing that God's everything, um, then we're brought into step three, right? Where, where I, I'm coming to this place of truly believing that any life, that my life run on self-will can hardly be a success. Step, you know, that's the third step surrender. Do I truly believe that my life run on my will can't be a success? If I still think that I can manage things, I'm not going to keep going. So I have to, and, and trust me, I spent nine months sober, dry, miserable, trying to, um, try, trying to self-will my way through sobriety. And sobriety and recovery are two different things. I was sober. I was not recovered. I was miserable, and I made everybody around me miserable. And so I was trying to... Um, you know, I, I was trying to rely on my own will. You know, what happens is we either drink or we change or we blow our brains out. I've seen all three happen. Thankfully, you know, I'm grateful that, that, I, that I hit a bottom without having to do the other two things. And I was brought to that place of true surrender where those first three propositions, um, you know, all clicked into place. Um, so that third step surrender leads us into four and five, where we're writing down all of these things, right? We've got our resentment inventory where we're looking at all of the, we think that we're going into it, like it's sort of a trick. We think we're going into it just talking about all the ways that people have wronged us. You know, it's like, that's, you know, like I was super excited about column one and column two, you know, it's like, yeah, this jerk and, oh, she was the worst. And, you know, like just, you know, getting really down and dirty with it. You know, and then, you know, we've got column three and four where we start to see things from it, you know, especially column four, where I'm really turning it around and looking at it from a whole new angle. And I start to see the stage character that I've been playing, right? I start to really understand who I am. And so we, you know, I spent hours in step five reading and then we've got our fear and our sex inventory. And so I, you know, you're sitting there for a long time over and over again, looking, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the ways that I show up. I, you know, I believed that I was just this sweet little, you know, hippie chick that just peace and love, man, you know, it's like, can't we all just get along? That, that's who I thought that I was in truth. Like that was my persona. I was, you know, like stealing from you and then helping you look for it. You know, oh my, you know, like I, you know, my money was taken too. Let's look over here. Maybe it's under, you know, like I was that jerk. You know, it's like I'd make out with your boyfriend when you were in the other room. Like, you know, one love, baby. You know, it's like I, I thought that I was somebody very different than who I really was. And by the end of my fifth step, and I say this because it's so important. It's been so important for me. By the time I was done reading, it was a bitter pill. You know, some people walk out of their fifth steps and it's not wrong. It's just not, it never been my experience. Some people walk out feeling very free, feeling like somebody else finally has their whole story and they feel really connected to God. It's, it's a spiritual experience. My experience has always been that I've just like really swallowed some, you know, hard, ugly chunks of truth about myself because I am delusional. And by the end of step five, um, it's been handed right back to me. Here's the truth about who you are in your life, in the world, and in the lives of the people that you love the most. You are trying to get what you want. You are manipulating. You're stepping on toes. You are lying. You are cheating. Even today, you know, it's like I can still be um, delusional. I can still create chaos and confusion for the people closest to me because I still live by the delusion that I can only be okay if you do what I need you to do for me. So step five, you know, like hitting that point of, it's been a real bottom for me every, every, every single time where I really have just faced um, the truth of what I bring to, my, to the relationships in my life. Um, and that's been important because that's what carries me through six and seven. You know, I'm coming into the sixth step with a full understanding of who I am. You know, it's the truth. It's not good or bad. It's just the truth. This is who I am. And so, you know, I, as a sponsor, I am writing as I'm listening to your fifth step. If your sponsor doesn't do that, it's not wrong. Everybody does it differently. 
I just tend to jot down the defects of character that my sponsees um, that I hear as they're reading and then I give them this list at the end of their fifth step. It's not exhaustive. I, it's just the, they're, they're the ones that have popped up for me and I say, you know, add to this. Go home, spend your hour and go back through your inventory. Is there anything you missed? And, you know, write down more character defects. Spend the next couple of days adding to this list as you go. But it's important that I do it right, right after that fifth step because it is fresh in my mind. You know, I am humbled. You know, I have humility in that moment. Um, and my ego is obliterated. The tricky thing about, you know, alcoholics and probably humans um, is that our ego has this regenerating quality. It rebuilds itself, it reconstructs, and pretty, you know, before very long, I think that I'm great again. I think that I'm doing better than you. There's this old story that was in the grapevine that I always have loved, and it was like this person wrote in saying, you know, it's like, I've really been praying for humility. You know, which humility, I always think of being right-sized, right, being teachable. So, you know, I've been praying for humility. You know, it's like it's a character asset that I really want in my life. And, you know, morning and night asking God to bring me humility, you know, and being humble and being right-sized. And I was sitting in the meeting tonight looking around and really telling myself how much more humble and how much more humility I had than him and her and her and him and you know, it's like, it's just what we do, right? It's like, we think we are doing so great. And even in prayer, I can be, um, you know, just reconstructing my ego. So again, you know, at the end of step five, I am pretty much as, um, as right-sized as I'm going to get. And so that is where in truth with God, I'm writing the rest of these defects of character down that I've just seen. How, what is the truth about my character? Who am I? Who do I show up as? And that's going to be so important, you know, for the rest of your sobriety, but for sure for eight and nine, when you're going to, you know, sit down and make amends to the people that you love the most or that you hate the most, you know, it doesn't matter. You probably owe them all amends. I certainly have. So, you know, so, so I've got this list. I, you know, say the prayer. It's a great prayer, but, you know, sort of like the same with that third step prayer. The words, the words are just symbolic. They really are. And again, I love the words I say. I say the actual prayer, but it's a big, you know, if you don't say them with, if you say them without meaning them, they're not going to do anything. Like this is about me offering everything to God and saying, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know. I have no idea. Even when I think I'm doing the right thing, I'm still, I still have selfish and self seeking motives. God, take it all, take it all and, you know, make me who you want me to be. And then, you know, it's like the, the, and different people have different experiences. I find six and seven to be really painful steps because, you know, I, again, I come into um, step six and I, and I always, you know, I think I've in that place after five, I have always had total willingness to give everything to God. There's never been something I want to cling to later. There will be, you know, um, but in that moment, I'm usually so um, right-sized that God, take it all, take it all. And I'm saying the prayer, you know, all day long. I'm going out about, about my business, you know, life goes on. But now I'm wide awake to it. Now I see with complete clarity the things that I'm doing. I, all of the things that I just read to my sponsor, you know, three days later, I see myself doing it still. You know, I'm snapping at my kids. You know, I'm flipping people off in traffic. I'm, um, you know, covering up things at work that I didn't do right because I don't want to look bad. And now it's so objectionable to me. Now, like, I deeply, deeply don't want to be that person. And I can't stop doing it. You know, again, lack of power is my dilemma. I'm on step seven. I don't yet have access to that power. I'm on my way there. But I still don't really have the power to be any different. Now, just my eyes are wide open to it. And it hurts. You know, again, like I've just seen so clearly how my, my defects are harming the people closest to me. And now I can't lie to myself. Like there's no delusion anymore. Now I see it with complete, you know, 2020 vision. And yet I can't stop doing it. Some things God did take quickly. Like, you know, um, there are some things that, that were easy. And then there are some things that I'm still offering to God, you know, all of these years later. Um, like judgment. Stephanie and I were talking about judgment yesterday. You know, like that's a hard one for me. 
you know, um, it's, it just is, it's like, it's one and it's objectionable. And I always like, even today I have to bring it back. Do I believe that this defective character, um, is going to block me from the power that I, that my life depends on? Do I believe my life depends on offering this defective character to God? Or do I think that I can get away with just being like, yeah, she's a real bitch, you know? Um, usually I think I, usually I live, I, I have that delusion that I can get away with these little teeny tiny char character defects. It's not the big ones. I'm not cheating. You know, I'm not stealing anymore. So like, surely God doesn't mind if I'm just, you know, like thinking about how boring this guy in the meeting is tonight, you know? Um, but the truth is it's all like, these are all the things that are blocking access for me. Um, and I really have to treat them with the same, the same way. So I've, I, I didn't grow up religious. Um, I don't have like really any background at all with that, but the Quaker religion, and I've never been to a Quaker church either, but I've always been super interested in them. And there's this one really great story and I'm probably going to butcher it. But, um, so the Quaker church was, I don't know if he was the founder or if he was just one of the founders, it was this guy, George Fox. And, um, and so he, I don't, I think he was in England or something. I don't know. But then we had, so here in America, there was one of our kind of founding fathers of the United States was this guy, William Penn. And he was the um, founder of Pennsylvania. And he was trying to be a Quaker. He like had joined the Quaker religion. He was like super into it. Um, and one of the big tenets of being a Quaker is like this like is peacefulness. Like you don't fight, you don't go to war. They're, they're all about like, you know, just um, like non-resistance and non-violence. But back in, you know, those days, if you were of a certain um, stature and, um, you know, sort of importance, part of your uniform was wearing a sword. And William Penn, you know, he was, I guess, like American nobility or whatever they would have been called back then. But you know, he wore this sword and he knew that it conflicted with the Quaker ideals. And so he wrote this letter to, to George Fox saying, like, what do I do about this? Like, you know, I, it, this is part of my, you know, um, expected um, uniform, but I know that it conflicts with the ideals of this religion that I want to be a part of. Like, what, what am I supposed to do? And what George Fox wrote back was, wear the sword until you can't wear it anymore. And, and he, he put down the sword and he stopped wearing it as part of his uniform. And I think like, that's, that's how I see steps six and seven. You know, there are some things when I was, you know, a year sober, there were things that I, that I did that I could, that I can't get away with today. I, I wasn't, I didn't even know that I was doing them, you know? And so, if you're anything like me, I will look at other people and think, how is she, why is she doing that? How does she get away with that? How can she be sober and still behave like that when I can't get away with it? The truth is we all have defects of character and they look different. I, there's some things that were just really easy for me to put down. You know, I just, if I was done with it, I put it, and then there's been other things that I've struggled with, you know, year after year. And when that sword gets too heavy, I will go to God with it, with that desperation of a drowning man saying, this is too heavy. Take it. Take it. I'm done with it. I can't carry it anymore. And that's, you know, over and over again, that's the offering that I come to. Once it's objectionable, and that's the key to this, they have to be objectionable to me. Step five makes them objectionable. Um, but then what, what happens when I'm not, you know, a day out from doing my fifth step? I have to bring it into prayer and meditation. God, you know, like this is objectionable to me. I cannot, I, I do not want to be the kind of person that shows up in the lives of my family, my coworkers, strangers in traffic, my neighbors, my children, um, you know, harming them in this way. This is objectionable to me. Please take it. It's too heavy. And, you know, and, and, I, and I've, like I tend to be a visual thinker. That, that image has worked for me. You know, I, I just, I've, I've always really loved that. Hey, Chloe. Yes. I have a question. Please. Is it possible for maybe at some point a character defect to be objectionable and in the process of the ego regenerating itself for a character defect to then not be objectionable anymore? Does that make sense? It does make sense. Absolutely. 
I mean, and again, I think that's what happens. That's what's happened for me after a fifth step. Everything's objectionable. God, I don't want to be this person anymore. Please take it all. I have this huge surrender, this um, immense willingness. And then I go back out in life and, you know, I, I fall back into that idea that, um, that I need to succeed and I will step on you to get there. I need to be happy and you're not going to get in my way. And so if you get in my way, then I'm going to do whatever it takes, you know? And again, I'm, I, you know, we, the, the more recovered we get, the narrower that path gets. And so it may not be that I feel like I can stab you or slice your tires or smash your windshield, but it may, you know, with a, you know, a little time sober, a little time recovered, it may be that I just manipulate you, you know? And so I, you know, six months ago, manipulation was really, really objectionable to me because I just really saw with full force how harmful that was. But six months later, it's it like now it's palatable again. You know, it's like I'm willing, I'm just willing to do a little bit. You know, I'm just, you know, because she doesn't know how much happier we'll both be if she'll just, you know, you know, do this thing that I need her to do. Does that, does that make sense? Yes. I have a question. Yeah, please. You just said, so whenever things happen and those, you know, character defects come regenerate or, you know, the thinking regenerates, is it because we're not maintaining fit spiritual condition? I would say yes. I mean, I would say if we're in 10, 11, and 12, and, Mm -hmm. you know, here, here, we suffer from this human condition at the end of the day. So none of us... Oh, I don't, maybe you guys are all perfect. I have not been struck perfect yet. God has not removed all of my defects of character. I choose to believe it's because I can better relate to people and therefore be more helpful. <laughs> but <laughs> what, what I believe is that, and Stephanie and I were talking about this a couple of days ago, in step 10, right? Like the 10th step, the like amazing promise that we get in step 10 is that we are restored to sanity right? Like in step two, we talk about like, you know, eventually you're going to get to this place and then it follows it up in step 10. You know, you are like, if you have done this, then you have, um, you know, you are now placed in a position of neutrality around alcohol. You can't drink even if you want to, you will react as if from a hot flame. You know, what, if somebody hands you a glass of, you know, wine it's going to be as if they're handing you a glass of Drano. You're going to jump back. You can't take it even if, even if you think that you want to. We are brought to a place um, where we, you know, we haven't sworn it off. We're not having to white knuckle it. It's done for us. But I also believe that if we are recovered, if we um, are restored to, you know, if our sanity has been restored, then we can't act like that anymore. If we are truly, like, if we have cleared away all of those things that are blocking us from God, then I can't lie. I can't cheat on my, you know, partner. Um, I react as if from a hot flame on those behaviors. If, you know, again, it, it, so far, I, you know, there's still plenty of defects that I do still react on, but I, you know, that, that path gets narrower and narrower. I can't, like, I can't steal. It's not even something that I have to, um, you know, white knuckle my way through. I am restored to sanity, you know, because again, this isn't an alcohol problem. This is a lack of power problem. And if I have access to power, then, um, then I'm restored to sanity, you know, in every aspect of my life. Um, and that's where 10 and 11 and 12 are so important. And that's where finishing your amends before, you know, through that, you know, again, we are in a place where we are trying to keep in that sunlight of the spirit. We're trying to keep that channel open. And if I'm not 10 stepping during my day, if I'm not doing my nightly review, um, if I'm not, you know, doing my prayer and meditation, then all of these defects of character, all of these little tiny resentments, all of these fears, um, they just start getting back in there. Um, And, you know, it's funny, I was talking to somebody um, just last night about this. Like I, so, you know, life happens, right? Like, you know, it, it, it's just a tricky thing. You know, um, we have these, like, you know, Joe and Charlie, and I talk about this a lot just because I love it so much, but Joe and Charlie have this story about, you know, and it's, you know, they're talking about it as far as anger goes, but I think it fits for any character defect. They talk about like, if you take an orange and you squeeze it, you get orange juice. If you take a lemon and you squeeze it, you get lemon juice. 
if you take me and squeeze me and anger comes out, jealousy comes out, insecurity comes out, you didn't put it there. It was already in me. And so, you know, these defects of character, I may think that I've dealt with it, that it's gone. Um, but then you put me in a new situation and you squeeze me, I get to see if it's there. Um, there was this meditation that I read one morning by C.S. Lewis. I'm sure you can probably find it if you Google it. It's called Rats in the Cellar. And I love it so much. He talks about how, um, you know, if you have rats in your cellar and you go stomping down the stairs um, into the cellar, and you switch on the lights, you're not going to see any rats. You know, they've heard you coming, they've scattered, they're hiding. But if you tiptoe down and you stand in the dark for a while and you quickly turn on the light and surprise them, you're going to see a floor full of rats. And so it's the same with my defects of character. Um, and I saw this one morning, I was riding, a, riding horses with my daughter, we were on the side of a road. And um, this truck went by really fast and like gunned it right when he got to us. And the horses startled a little bit. My daughter was like maybe nine and I got scared. And I, my finger went up and I started shouting profanities after this truck. Um, and my daughter was mortified. I would not act that way if I hadn't been startled, right? If, if I had a warning, if I, you know, if I could see with some clarity, if I could think it through, I wouldn't have acted that way, but I was surprised. I didn't have a chance to put on my motherly, recovered woman, mellow, you know, spiritual face. Does that mean that I don't have anger? No, it like I, it, it, it showed the truth of what is inside of me. It surprised me, it squeezed me, and something that was already in there came out before I was able to cover it up. You know, so we get put in these new situations all the time and we get to see the truth. I didn't know that I, you know, still had the ability to do that with my child right in front of me. If you had asked me, I would have said like, no, I don't. I mean, I swear in front of them all the time now, but um, when they were little, I was very good about my potty mouth and I didn't think that I would have done that. And yet you put me in a situation where I'm surprised and I get to see, you know, I, last time I was on here, I think, or at probably every time I'm on, on here, I talk about, I went through this divorce a year and a half ago. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and so like, then I went in, you know, I was a single woman. I've been married to this person for, you know, 26 years or something. And I had been with them since I was 18. And suddenly I'm single and I don't know, I don't know how to date. I, I don't know how to date drunk. I don't know how to date sober. I don't know how to date at all. I know how to get drunk and like hop in bed with somebody and then call them my boyfriend. You know, I'm like, I don't know how to do this. And all of these insecurities started coming up that I didn't know that I had. And I started seeing myself in a way that I was completely unaware was still a part of who I was because I just hadn't been in the situation to be squeezed in that way sober ever really. And so it, it gave me a chance to really see with um, a whole new perspective what defects of character were still alive and well in me. And I just hadn't had the opportunity to, um, you know, really be brought to a place of seeing them. You know, one of them was this giant fear of rejection. And again, it came out of this place of insecurity. I had no idea how ruled I, I am by insecurity, by the fear of what you think of me, not matching up, not being good enough, you know, being too old, not being pretty, whatever, all of these stories, it all comes from this insecurity. And so do I bring God into that? Or do I spend a million dollars on Botox? And, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe some of each, maybe God can be in Botox too. But like, what do I do with that? Am I ruled by that? Or am I accessing power so that, um, so that I'm, I'm offering these defects to God and trying to be aware of them throughout the day and bringing, you know, and bringing power into that part of my life. Here's one story that I love to tell because I, get, I was a couple of years sober. I thought that I understood six and seven. I was sponsoring. This was a pivotal moment for me when I really understood the, the real nature of, of these steps. I was sponsoring this girl named Jody. You know, poor Jody. Like I talk about her all the time on these steps because again, it's just like for me, it's the six and seven step story. It really is. So her big thing, she was, um, I think she was just dating him at the time, this guy named Chris, and she was super insecure. That was one of her like big character defects. 
And it would come out when they were driving around town. They'd be driving down the street and Chris would be at the wheel and he'd look out the window and she'd look to see what he's looking at and she would you know, invariably find some woman someplace five miles down the road and say, you were looking at her, weren't you? You think she's pretty. You like blondes, don't you? You know, whatever craziness she would go into. And poor Chris would be like, what? No, I was just like looking to, you know, I, don't, I was just looking out the window. I didn't even see her. And Jody would just lose her ever loving mind and create this giant fight and they'd be yelling at each other and, you know, she'd be crying. It would be awful. And, um, you know, she'd call me and we'd talk it through. But, you know, again, the needed power wasn't there. She could not be any different. Um, and so she did, you know, four and five and, you know, in six and seven, this was one of those things she really wanted to be different. It was objectionable to her. She didn't want to be this person in, in her relationship, in life. She knew it was causing Chris harm. She didn't want to, you know, she, she didn't want to be that. She was really desperate to be different. She said the prayer. She was really inviting God in. And one day her and Chris are driving through town. You know, they get to a stop sign. Somebody crosses the road in front and it's this pretty woman. And, you know, he's looking straight ahead and Jody thinks, you know, don't say anything, don't say anything, don't say anything. And then she says something and she same the same thing that's always happened. She accuses him of looking at this woman and, you know, thinking she's attractive and Chris is defensive and pissed and feels attacked and they're fighting. And, you know, Jody calls me crying and says, this doesn't work. The steps are, you know, BS. Like, it, you know, it's, I'm the same person I've always been, you know, like, what's the point? What's the point? And again, it's that painful place of six and seven where we see the truth of our actions. We're not delusional anymore, and yet we don't yet have access to a power. But God also isn't going to do for us what we can do for ourselves. And I found that in six and seven often. God's not going to do for me what I can do for myself. But in that moment, as her sponsor on the other end of that phone, I understood six and seven. And I said, oh my God, Jody, did you hear what you said? You said, I had the thought, don't say anything. Don't say anything, don't say anything, don't say anything. And then you said something, but that was God. That was God absolutely coming in, in that moment, giving you the opportunity to turn towards him, turn towards a new way of being, or to turn back into your old way. God's not gonna make you somebody else, but he's gonna give you the choice. You had that moment of pause, and you had the ability to do something different or to not, and that's okay. But that is what six and seven is. There's been some things that have been taken, but more often than not, what I've been given is that moment, that moment of clarity to see the truth of my actions and to have the opportunity to turn towards something different or to do what I've always done, you know? And that's, and, and that's pretty amazing because I never, you know, Jody never had that moment before. There, you know, I never had that choice before. I now, you know, have, have that voice. And, you know, I had an email recently that I was writing to my ex-husband and I had that voice saying, don't hit send, don't hit send, don't do it, don't do it. I hit send. I did. And I thought, I know that I'm doing the wrong thing, but I don't care. It feels good right now. But, you know, I had, I had, it was my choice, you know, or God gave me the opportunity to choose to do something different and to, you know, not create harm. I did end up having to go back and apologize for that. But God does not make me into somebody that I don't want to be. I still have the ability to cause all the harm I want to cause, you know. But now I have the choice to either, you know, access power or to, you know, to, al or to align my will with God's will. Does anybody have any questions? I don't have a question, but that was like a crazy epiphany and mind-blowing. And I'm so glad you like gave that example out. Because for so long, I've had like, well, recently, like discovering the God awareness thing being like, well, how do you explain it? Or what is it? And I think you just put it into perfect words right there of just having that aha moment of like, yes, every time I hear that voice, I now recognize it now being recovered. But I never put two and two together that me ignoring it was God offering a choice and me going back to my own will. So that's really cool that you painted that picture. Thank you. Absolutely. Meredith, you look like you're having an experience there. Do you want to say anything? Hi. Hello. I totally connected with that. I have a lot of those right now. And I never thought of it that way. 
but it is, it is a God moment or a God shot. Some people say. But it made me think, you know, and this kind of goes back to the question that you asked earlier, Steph, you know, if, if I'm not doing, if, if I'm not doing 10 steps and 11 steps, then I'm not having that fifth step experience each day. And that's what I need, right? Like I, I can't do, like, I, you know, I, I'm not going, like, I don't do a fifth step every day. I don't. But what I have is, you know, those mini fifth steps, which is 10 and which is my nightlies, where hopefully if I'm doing it right, um, I'm having those mini surrenders where those defects are objectionable. Because like you said, if it's not objectionable, the needed power isn't going to be like, I'm, I'm not going to surrender it and access that power, which is what's needed. More and more delusional. You know, and I, we have blind spots. We just do. It's sort of like the rats in the cellar. You know, it's like we just, we don't know what's there if we don't know. And I had this experience, and this was, you know, when I was moving to Texas, so like eight years ago, my mom is, um, you know, I mean, moms and daughters, they're complicated relationships. My mom's been, you know, a big part of uh, my story, good and bad in many ways. And she loves me so much. I know she does. And um, that love can sometimes be messy and overwhelming. And, you know, she's an active addict and alcoholic and all of the things that go with that. And so when I was leaving Maine, I knew, like, I didn't want to tell her that we were moving because I knew that it was going to be a thing. And I hate things. I hate, like, I hate conflict. I hate you being upset with me. I hate, you know, like, messy big feelings that are not my own like my own i can kind of get down with but your messy big feelings like i don't want like you know take it away and my mom has big messy feelings and i knew that me and her grandchildren moving out of maine and all the way to, the t to texas was going to create a lot of her big feelings um and i didn't want to deal with it and i and again th these are blind spots so I, none of me was coming into this with awareness like in my mind it all made perfect sense um, I was delusional. And so here's how my conversation with my mom went. Hey mom, so, you know, Brian got this job in Texas and, you know, I, th I think that we're, you know, gonna have to move to Austin, you know, and then she started like spiraling and crying and, and I started panicking. And so the next thing I said was, no, no, we're gonna buy a house that's big enough and you'll have your own room and you can move with us. And, in my head, I hear myself saying this, but my next thought is there's no way she's gonna move. She's not gonna come to Texas. But like that's, she doesn't even show up for Thanksgiving. She can't, like, she can't get her life together to like drive 20 minutes. There's no way she's gonna pack up everything and come to Texas. So in my mind, this was okay. This little lie, this you know, manipulation, but then it starts going on. So then we start actually looking for a house that has a room for her. But in the back of my head, I keep, you know, and my husband's getting, my husband, my, he's now my ex-husband, but my husband at the time started getting nervous because my mom's a hot mess, right? Like, just think, active addict, alcoholic. And he's saying, like, Chloe, I think she's actually going to move with us. And I'm saying, no, no, don't, like, she's definitely not. Just think about it. Like, she's, she's going to bail at the last minute. Just hang in there. But we want a house with an extra room in case somebody wants to come and visit, right? Like, Anyway, to jump to the end, she moved with us. And, you know, just as awful as you can probably imagine it might have been, it was that bad. My kids were having nightmares about, you know, their grandmother burning the house down. Um, we were having to spot her on the stairs because she was going to fall. She was, you know, like it was, it was a mess. <clears throat> My kids had never experienced active addiction or alcoholism with their dad or me. And yet I brought that into their childhood because, again, because of because of my defects of character, um, because I don't like conflict, because I don't, the bottom line is I don't wanna be unhappy. Um, I don't wanna be uncomfortable and I will lie, I will manipulate, I will move you into my house to avoid a hard conversation. And in the end, it was so, it was awful for everybody and I had to put her on a plane and send her back to Maine. And you know, I caused harm to my then husband, to my children, to her, to my sister. All because, you know, again, so these defects of character, it's not just like I'm a little bit of a jerk and I might flip you off in traffic. I will move you into my house, you know, and then I will hate you for it. And I will think that it's your fault, even though I know exactly who you are ahead of time. I'm pissed that you're not different. 
Um, and I think that if I intervene on you, if I send you to treatment, if I cry, if I use fraud, the emotional appeal, that maybe you'll show up differently and then I resent you because you don't, you know? Um, and then everybody's mad at me because I've done it. I, I'm, and I'm like going, why are you mad at me? I'm not the addict. I'm not the one that's falling down the stairs. Um, and so when I saw the truth of that, I, I was a lot of years sober. And I, it, I, it was a blind spot. I was, you know, I, I wasn't doing nightlies. I wasn't tent stepping. <clears throat> I was running on self-will, just trying to arrange the lights, the scenery. And th all of those steps leading up to this, all, they're, they're all relevant all the time. We don't just do a third step and then move on. It is all relevant because I still show up as that actor that's playing the director, that's convinced that if you would just stay put, if you would just say these lines, if you would just wave your hand this way when I point at you, then I'll be happy and you will too. Um, and it still shows up in my life, you know, but if I'm doing 10 and 11, you know, um, hopefully I have, you know, people with spiritual consent that are able to point out those blind spots when I can't see them myself, you know, full of ego and I want what I want. And so it's, for me, it's just being like, it's Mark, this old, the speaker that's not with us anymore named Mark used to talk about, I'm asleep dreaming I'm awake and I'm walk, I'm going through life sound asleep. And the problem with it is I don't even know I'm asleep until I wake up. And then I look back, you know, and that's how it is, right? When I'm dreaming, I don't know I'm dreaming. I don't know that I'm dreaming until I'm awake. And I look back, I'm operating through life spiritually asleep and I'm stepping on you and I'm doing these defects are ruling my life. And I rely on being spiritually awakened in order and staying spiritually awake in order to see that. And some of it's just that like, it's some of it's just spiritual development. Some of it's, you know, again, that, like that, that we can't see it until we, you know, um, have certain experiences, till we surrender certain pieces of ourselves. Some of it we're just not going to see until we get put in a position where our eyes are opened. You know, and I think it's just, it's like, it's just being like the, our defects, um, you know, it's really four and five are really so good for like that. That's where we're really pulling it apart and seeing with clarity. But again, I'm still sometimes surprised. Like I said about like my level of insecurity, I had no idea until I was put into a position where it was really brought to the forefront and it, you know, until I was in a position to see it. Anyone else? I did not think I was going to be able to talk for an hour about six and seven. It was perfect timing too. It was so great. Thank you so much. This podcast is from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a nonprofit organization located in Dallas, Texas, and we provide comprehensive recovery services to alcoholic women at absolutely no cost. You can learn more and support our mission at magdalenehouse.org.